What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Thatcher Wine. He's a professional book curator, founder of Juniper Books, and an author. Multitasking will make you less effective, less productive, less happy, and more prone to making errors in work and life. The question of why we're all so tempted to do it then, and how we can stop, seems an obvious next step. Expect to learn whether multitasking is just a modern phenomenon, how monotasking can result in more work being done at a higher quality, how technology has permanently changed the landscape for attention, the usefulness of walking between tasks, why tasks can get more difficult before they get easier again, and much more. This is yet another perennial human problem, trying to get too much stuff done. And I agree with the fundamental thesis that focusing on one thing, going an inch wide and a mile deep on the thing which is right in front of you is not only more satisfying and fulfilling, but also more effective. So I'm sure that you don't need to be convinced of it theoretically, but there are some good practical solutions for how you can use monotasking more during your daily work and personal life today. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, please welcome Thatcher Wine. Thatcher Wine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. How did you arrive at thinking about multitasking and monotasking? What's the journey that's taken you to think about that? Yeah, so a lot of it came out of my own personal experience. Um, I'm a citizen of the world that we live in, which is super distracting to begin with. Got all this technology, constantly asking for our attention, our smartphones, computers, other devices. Uh, and then on top of that, I kind of threw in some personal challenges that were of the next level distraction variety. Uh, a few years ago, I went through cancer, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, also an entrepreneur, had a business for about 20 years called Juniper Books that is very you know, creatively um, broad in, in what we do with books and very you know, demanding of a lot of my attention and creativity and productivity. Uh, I'm also a parent of two teenagers and... You know, I wanted to figure out a way to navigate all the things I was going through, figure it out for myself. And, and what I figured out, I thought I could share with the world what I learned about multitasking and monotasking. What was the genesis of that? Was there a point where you were juggling so many things with the family, with the work, with the health? Was there a, a particular sort of period of time in which everything kind of got a bit much? Yeah, I got to the point basically between... 2016 and 2019, where I hit the wall. I just, there was, couldn't possibly have been more that I was dealing with at one time. And I was finding it really hard to switch back and forth between what I was going through for my health, for my business, for my family. And, you know, I, what I decided to do was kind of look back at how I'd done it in the past. So I'm a pretty productive person. Um, and I'm pretty creative, and, and there are, I'm also very ambitious. A lot of things I want to do in life. So I kind of look back. How have I done this before? When have I not felt overwhelmed by it? And, you know, one pattern that I recognized was that when I gave my full attention to one thing at a time, I got things done well. People said, you know, the work is great. And my kids said, you know, we had fun. Like, you get the feedback from the world um, that you're doing a good job, and, and you don't feel so overwhelmed. But then, you know, once I layered on all these other distractions that I was dealing with, um, it just felt like I always had to be staying up late, getting up early, depriving myself of rest, not exercising, and just taking on more and more and more. And I never felt like I was caught up. So it was definitely in that three-year period, you know, where I was like, I got to find a better way. Is there a tension between the amount of work that you can get done 
and the amount that you focus on single things and the quality of work? Is there a way that all of those are kind of interlinked? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a bunch of research that's been done on multitasking. And the research basically shows that when we multitask, so when we take on more than one thing at a time, usually of the cognitive variety. So like you're doing an email and trying to listen in on a conversation, whether it's in Zoom or, or something else, um, we tend to make more mistakes and things take longer. Part of that is due to the fact that we just can't multitask. What, what we call multitasking is actually task switching. So we're going from one thing to another. We're making it look like we're doing it all at the same time. We like to look busy, right? That's sort of an American trait, especially. <laughs> but what people mean by what when they yeah. think what they think they mean by multitasking is parallel processing. Yeah, parallel processing, or it could be serial processing. And you know, you you do one thing, then you do the next thing, then you switch back to the other thing, back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. The parallel processing might be more like background tasking and primary tasking where you know somebody might be listening to this podcast while folding their laundry, right? Most people can do that. But can I have this conversation and also be working on a presentation or a response to a client? No, I can't do it. And I could pretend to do it, but I'd actually be switching back and forth and basically cognitively overloading my brain and causing a lot of stress. Studies have been done that show it takes on average 23 minutes to switch from one kind of cognitive heavy task to another. Because I like, if I tried to go from this conversation to my work, I'd need a little time to figure out like, where was I? What's this all about? What are my goals? Like, reviewing it for mistakes and all that. So we don't often give ourselves that break, that 23 minutes, and it causes us to get overwhelmed and stressed out and burnt out. To be honest, what's the root of multitasking? Is this a perennial human problem? Are the <laughs> philosophers of ancient Athens struggling with this as well? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's definitely been around for thousands of years. Part of it is the, and that's an understatement, but it's part of it is the design of the human brain. Like we're supposed to take in what's happening in our environment, be aware of the, the dangers. It's a wild animal off in the distance. Like I got to heighten my awareness and take care of my family. That's an ancient form of multitasking, right? Another one is like I'm sitting here, but my mind is wandering. So can I bring it back to the present moment through prayer, or meditation? Those practices have been around for a very long time. Modern multitasking, I think, dates to like the 1960s when computers were introduced. And we started to think about how they could multitask processes, switching from one application to another. So like the 1980s with Windows, like everybody visualized it at their desktop computer. Oh, I can go from Excel to Word, you know, and my computer can run both applications at the same time. Well, if humans designed those computer programs, why can't we do the same thing? Why can't we teach ourselves to multitask? And then a lot of like employers started, you know, kind of asking, can you multitask? Like, we'd love to have you on the team. and We're going to throw all this stuff at you. And then it became kind of glorified. And a lot of people brag about their ability to multitask. But it's not actually good for us. And it's not something we're particularly good at. Why is it not good for us? I understand why it's not something that we're good at. Yeah, so it causes like a physical and mental strain on our bodies that we're just not designed for. Um, So I mentioned the 23 minute statistic a few minutes ago. So when we don't give ourselves the time to switch from one thing to another, we get stressed out. We feel overwhelmed. We can't quite put our finger on it. Um, But we 
you know, there's a, a real bottleneck in our cognitive ability. So like you'll have people these days, I hear a lot, like, I don't enjoy my hobbies anymore. I used to enjoy reading. I used to enjoy biking. But, you know, the fact that we always bring our phones with us everywhere and a lot of people do something like make a call, scroll through social media, it creates a multitasking bottleneck in our brains. So we can't like have that feeling that we used to have of being in the present moment, enjoying what we used to enjoy right now, right here and with the people we're with. Yeah, it really does feel like we're not immersed in experiences as much. You know, I kind of I critique myself all day about this. I'm in a taxi journey. Good example. I was in a taxi journey to go for dinner last night and I'm sat in the taxi and I'm driving through South Congress. South Austin's really nice. Got downtown coming toward me. I can see the Capitol building sort of through the dark front windscreen next to the Uber driver. And I was thinking, this is really, really nice. And I'm just watching. But I had to consciously think about not picking up my phone to check if, oh, maybe there's an email that I can get to right now, which is going to make tomorrow a little bit easier because I won't, I won't have that email to do. Um, but even that, even though I decided not to task switch, the ambient sort of parallel processing world or multiple uh, multitasking world, even the thought of that took me out of the present moment and being <laughs> immersed in it as well. Yeah. So, you know, there's like, there's gradations of how distracted you can be when you're doing stuff. But I really, really value that memory. You know, thinking back about last night and seeing the Capitol building coming in and it's cool and there aren't so many skyscrapers in Newcastle where I'm from, so it's a different sort of view for me to see. And I really value that. Um, but it's so easy to avoid it. Did Have you thought, I'm going to guess that you must have realized that boredom plays a, a pretty big role here, that a lot of the time what people are doing with multitasking is probably sedating themselves from the boredom of one thing with another thing. A hundred percent, yeah. So, you know, what was going on in that that car ride, you know, is that we've trained ourselves or we've been trained by technology and our devices and despite the fast-paced modern world we live in, that we never have to be bored. As soon as anybody gets bored these days, like our tendency is to reach for our phone. As soon as we feel like, oh, I've, I've got whatever I'm doing right now down, I'm going to layer something else on. So it's it's just a habit and we have to go easy on ourselves that like it's not our fault that we're reaching for our phone. Like there's billions of dollars and lots of people on the other side of that convincing us that that's what we should do. Um, what I the the book, The 12 Monotasks that I wrote, um, there's a chapter in there called Getting There. And it, it's all about, you know, how to pay attention to the journey, whether that's your commute or you're, you're in a new city or you're, um, you know, going on a trip and seeing something new. Like, and just sit with the fact that, you know, look out the window. Pay attention to the things you've, you've never seen before or something. You know, if you've taken this ride a thousand times, maybe you will notice something new. Or maybe you'll just like monotask your boredom and be okay with that. And and then not reach for your phone so quickly in the future. Um, there's also like this big impulse to be like, oh, that's really cool. I have to take a picture. And it's like, no, you were there. You, it's okay. You know, the experience was great. You remember it. You had that feeling. And just the like the act of even thinking about taking a picture and layering on something else like can really take us out of that moment and that feeling of, of happiness and joy of being where we are. What technology's done, and not to lay all of the problems of multitasking at the feet of technology, right? Like it, this is 
as it seems, a perennial desire for humans to constantly rid themselves of boredom by any means necessary. But it's driven the price of removing boredom essentially down to zero. It's made it, it's made it frictionless for us to be able to get rid of that at any time. So at the slightest sign of discomfort, what we do is we then escape that. We're waiting in line somewhere. We're on a journey somewhere. And for the people, pretty much everyone has some form of productive work that they can do on their phone, even if that's just answering personal emails or, or swiping stuff as unread. So you can always, there's a kernel of truth in it, right? That, well, this is productive. This is me being useful. And this journey is going to happen anyway. You know, I'm going to to town. I might as well use it for something useful. Um, what is it? about monotasking that makes it so hard then because when you think about it it sounds like it would take more effort to do two things at once instead of one and usually the human system's pretty good at finding ways to be lazy so it's kind of counterintuitive that monotasking is difficult that's a great observation um and and i talk about that a little bit in the book like if if it were easy and obvious it would be a very short book and and i wouldn't have that much to say (laughs) Um, but it's actually, it is really hard. And anybody that's tried to do one thing at a time instead of multitasking, you know that. So I think it also think it's really simple. That's one of the greatest compliments I get. It's like, this is so simple yet powerful. Like it should be simple. We should just be able to decide like, Hey, I'm doing five things at once. I'm going to pick one. I'm going to do it with my full attention. And I'm going to move on to number two. The reality is that like multitasking has become very pleasurable in some respects, like you think about media multitasking, like you sit on the couch with your phone, you're texting, you're watching Netflix, you've got your computer on, you know, maybe occasionally popping in and checking an email. Um, it, I think everybody can relate to that. Like you just relax and, and like you don't, you're not really getting much done. You're not paying full attention to anything. So I think that's where it becomes hard. Paying full attention instead of deci- paying partial attention. Paying partial attention is easy. It just doesn't really result in your best work or your most efficiency or really being present with the people you you care about that you're hanging out with. Um, So I think it's pleasurable. I think it's habitual, you know, so like everything in the world is just glorified multitasking culture made you think you can do it and you're going to be celebrated if you do it. And here are some, you know, celebrities and famous people that do it on you know, run their fashion empire in between, you know, playing tennis matches or whatever. Um, so it's hard. And I think we, once you do the work and you, you get more accustomed to the feeling of what it feels like to do one thing at a time, and you recognize like, hey, this isn't something I've felt in a while, then that becomes more rewarding than the multitasking. Then you start to recognize like what you recognized in the, in the car. Like, hey, I'm not paying full attention here and I'm not enjoying this really cool view. Like, what if I could do that? And then you, you do it, and then you, like, start to make more of those moments in your life. The more practice you do it, the better at it you become. I think that very much the best work that we do is when we're focused on a single thing. And beyond the fact that we can't really multitask, and it's making our work uh, take longer, and it's not as psychologically fulfilling, I think the main difference that I've noticed with my friends that are able to go sort of hard and deep with one particular task is the level of output in terms of the the um, quality of the work, the level of creativity or ingenuity or um, 
just they are able to get to a higher level by focusing on one thing. And the most important thing, when you think about what you're competing with everybody else on, you're not, you're in a, very rarely in a job are you competing on the volume of work that you can put out. Like the best pitch that wins a new client over is not the pitch with the most words or the pitch that's been sent the most times or the, the company that puts the most ideas across. It's usually the company that has the single best idea. The person that gets the job isn't the person with the longest CV. It's the person with the best CV, with the highest caliber of work. And increasingly, you see this in, in the world of podcasting or YouTube, right? The best YouTubers and podcasters on the planet, they're not the people that put out the most videos. Now, there might be some correlation between consistency of content and um, how popular they are in the market, but it's not about that. It's about the fact that when you sit down and listen to whoever your favorite podcaster is, you know that that's going to be a really, really high quality podcast. So you don't care about the fact that someone could live stream their life 24 hours a day, but if it's not good, it doesn't matter. And it's going to be beaten by the guy that does one amazing hour of work per week because he's fully focused on it. So I think that there needs to be uh, an understanding sort of a cultural change so that people realize that you genuinely aren't competing with other people based on the volume of work that you put out. You're competing with it based on the quality of the work that you put out. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear that, you know, if I'm not creating this huge volume of work and making it and telling people about all the things I'm doing and all the side hustles I have and all, you know, the accomplishments, like, that I'm somehow failing. But but you're absolutely right. It's it's about quality, not quantity. Almost all success in life. And and that comes from, you know, I reference in the book Cal Newport and deep work. Like you have to like focus, do your when you get into the space of like deep work, um, and you learn how you do your best deep work, like then you can do it. And you can do it more often. And you can be more successful and you can take on a lot of things in life. Like, so I have a business, I, you know, I'm a parent, written a couple books. Like, it's a lot of output. The only way I can do it is by doing one thing at a time. I can't write a new book while I'm, you know, talking to a customer on the phone. Um, but I can do both in life. And I, and I don't think that people should, you know, scale back their expectations of what they do. Um, I think they should just do them one at a time. And and I think there's a lot of fear, you know, at the beginning when people are so used to multitasking, it's like, oh, I, I can't, I can't slow down, you know, then I won't be as productive. And and what if I slow down and then like, I can't get back up to speed if I want to, you know, so there's like any making any habitual change like that, like it takes some courage to take the first step, give it a try and then realize, oh, I'm actually going to get more done I'm going to do better quality work. I'm going to be more connected. And I'm going to be better at like everything in life. I'm going to be a better listener. And that's not just going to help me get the customer, but have a better relationship with a partner. How did cancer change your view on this stuff? Yeah, I mean, cancer changed everything in my life. I mean, I, I, was, a, I was a healthy person beforehand, very active, and then discovered I had three tumors in my chest and had to go through pretty intensive chemo, uh, about 100 hours a week uh, times six rounds. Um, so it was pretty grueling. And, and what I didn't know is that that was just going to be the beginning. When I went through chemo, everybody was like, oh, chemo is so hard. You're going to be sick. You're going to be weak. You're going to lose weight. You're not going to want to eat. Um, nobody really told me how long it was going to take to recover from it and get my energy back. But it took like close to four years. And, and part of that was because I pushed myself too hard while I was going through treatment to keep up with work, try to, you know, ride my bike 
afterwards, I like tried to keep up appearances. You know, I was like the really hardworking, creative, optimistic guy. And I was like, I feel like crap. Uh, and I didn't want people to know that. And I, I was like, I just get a good night's sleep. If I just like, you know, take a day off, if I just get this work done, maybe I'll feel better. And nothing worked. And it really just took a lot of time, a lot of like micro adjustments. And so I think it gave me this perspective that like, you know, what if I never get back to my full strength? What if I have to slow down? What if I can't pretend like what if I can't fake it till I make it? <laughs> um, and so I, I made a lot of adjustments like in my mindset, in my like diet, in my daily routine uh, and the like where I gave my attention because like that was the one thing, even though my body didn't feel good. Um, and even though I was exhausted, like I could give my attention to things and, and choose where to apply that. And knowing that it was kind of precious and limited, um, you know, I decided to like really become a keen observer about my attention, my focus, distractions in the world and try to manage them a little bit better, um, in order to, to get more done. It's wild that 600 hours of chemotherapy still wasn't enough to slow down your desire to multitask <laughs> in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, that's a good observation. Everybody said, like, slow down, you know, take care of yourself. You know, you'll have time to do, you know, whatever you're trying to do on your laptop at the, you know, the infusion center later. Um, but no, I didn't listen because I think I thought... Like I did a lot of work observing myself like on the side effects and kind of making those micro adjustments I talked about, like, you know, take aloe vera juice for, you know, my stomach soreness and whatever. Like I had a million tips and, and tricks that I'd figured out and learned from other cancer patients and, and practitioners. Um, but I still didn't want to slow down. Yeah. I mean, that's and that I could like I, you know, relate to other people in this world, whether they're going through cancer or something else. They're just trying to get their startup off the ground while working a full-time job. Like it's life. Everybody's going through something and, um, you know, there's a lesson to be learned in all of it. And, and I think we just always have to, you know, learn from it and make some adjustments to optimize you know, our happiness and our stress levels and our performance. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is, um, a hourglass shaped or a, a, a bottleneck shape that a lot of journeys and sort of passion projects that then perhaps become businesses or, you know, relationships that then get a little bit more serious that they tend to follow. So this is complete bro science. So just bear with me. <laughs> um, at the beginning, when you do something, it's usually new. The novelty motivates you. It's casual. So there isn't that much pressure. This, you know, let's run this for both re relationship and passion project that becomes business, right? All of these things are true for both of those. There's little pressure. There's no sunk cost fallacy. There's no investment. You don't feel like it's part of your um, identity. People don't really care that much about you doing it. It's just a thing that you're doing for fun. Over time, the level of pressure and scrutiny that you and other people place on you, the amount of investment that you have, the amount of work that you need to do, the amount of tasks and different areas that you need to try and bring together in an effective manner, those start to ramp up. But you haven't got to the stage yet where you've done it for so long that you can either delegate control to somebody else or kind of operationalize some of the common challenges that you face so that you become easier at it becomes easier to you. So you go from the wide neck, right? It's easy 
casual, less pressure, to the narrowing in the middle section, which is when you've got more pressure, more workloads, more tasks to try and do, a greater sense of obligation to the people around you and to the people that you work with. But then I do think that out the other side of that, you can actually get yourself to a place especially in a business where maybe you've recruited an assistant and maybe there's a manager now and maybe you've operationalized stuff and maybe you've got a social media team in to come and look after stuff and maybe you've got somebody in that's going to do finance and someone's going to do marketing and you don't have to do your own schedule anymore. And it actually, it does follow a very odd sort of curve shape. It goes from easy to difficult to easy again. However, what you realize is that the strategy that got you from easy to difficult was putting your nose against the grindstone was going, right, I'm going to go as hard as possible. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to be across everything. And every business person that's listening knows how difficult it is to let go of control, to delegate and to relinquish the tasks that you usually do to new people because you know that they're going to get it wrong at least a little bit more than you do right now. And letting go, is it makes you terrified. So a lot of the time, you don't ever allow yourself to get out the other side of that hourglass bottleneck to find the easy stuff that's on the other side in a relationship as well. You know, you're going to have most disagreements in relationships are going to center around probably five things. You know, it's going to be a consistent thing that happens. You choosing to do one thing instead of another, you choosing to not do this thing instead of that. Those are the disagreements that are fundamentally going to happen. So operationalize those as well. But if you don't allow yourself to be able to come up with the solutions to delegate control in a business or to try and I guess break down those challenges in relationships. You just stay in that middle section. So yeah, that's my that's my cod psychology uh, <laughs> solution for you. Yeah, no, I love it, and I can totally relate to that. Um, you know, so I've had my business Juniper Books for 21 years now, and, and not to disappoint any you know entrepreneurs, people starting up companies, like it it never really gets it gets easier and then it gets harder. I mean, I don't know if it's one hourglass shape or it's like multiple. multiple. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I'm going through a lot of that right now. I'm, you know, especially as I'm trying to like work more on promoting monotasking and sharing the message with the world. Like I'm trying to delegate more and more. I have 20 employees. Every one of those people does something now that I used to do for myself. So I've got like 20x, you know, my capability or whatever, which is awesome. Like that's where you want to get to. But then like, you know, I got to get another like 5% off my plate. Got to find the right person. Got to train them. Um, you know, but once I get them up to speed, like then I'm going to help like manage them to build their team. So yeah, so not to disappoint anybody out there that they're going to be on the easy street at some point. Um, but yeah, you have to work on it and you figure out a lot of things along the way. Um, and I do think it's true, um, you know, with relationships and our personal life and our hobbies, you know, it's like, yeah, you can learn how to do a new sport and then you can get better at it, you know. And then you have your setbacks and then you, you know, work on it again and it's life. And I think we should go, we should be realistic about the learning process and the ups and downs that we're going to encounter. A lot of people like look at a lot of like the stories you read in the, the press, you know, like, oh, so-and-so, you know, raised a billion dollars, sold their company, whatever. Like whilst being an endurance racer and building a family <laughs> and doing all of this other shit. Yeah. I mean, those are the stories that are great for the press to tell. It's not, you know, what for every one of those, there's, you know, 10,000 other people. Um, and a lot of them, like, you'll never hear about and they figure it out and they're running their businesses day to day and they have a great life. And like, that's, I think, what most of us should aspire to. Um, yeah. There's a uh, quote 
that I saw the other day that says you want everybody to know your name and nobody to know your face. And hmm. I think that that kind of just highlights the people that have that huge outlier success, like that, that outliers by definition, as opposed to the people that just iterate steady away on something that works. So given the fact that you have your uh, book company, plus you're an author, perhaps unsurprisingly, you said that one of the most important monotasks was to read. So what's <laughs> the advantage of reading, especially given the fact that a lot of people that I know talk about reading, but what they mean is listening to books on Audible. So their consumption of books is actually the same way as you would do a podcast, because maybe they, they struggle to sit down uh, and focus on a book for a long period of time. So I've thought a lot about reading because I've been in the book business for so long and I've thought about like, you know, how do we, what, what benefit does it provide us besides just like entertainment or information? So we can get information from an audiobook or a podcast. Um, and you know, what I've, what I came to the conclusion about is that like reading really helps us build our focus so that, and then we can apply that focus to other parts of our life. And when I looked around at successful people, like, Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey and Warren Buffett, like they're big readers. Some of the busiest people in the world are some of the biggest readers. It's like, how do they have time for that? Why do they bother? Like, couldn't they just be going and like starting more companies and making more money? And, and what I saw is that there's a correlation between, you know, the habits of successful people, their ability to pay attention, and then their ability to be successful in life. And so I think what reading does for us, and, and I do think it's great, like however you get your books and information is great. That's better than not reading. So, but I do think there's something special about the printed page. When you bring your, when you hold a book in your hands, it like takes up space and has like a weight to it. You're like, you're in one place. Um, your attention looking at the page is in one place too. And it goes, you know, down one page and then up to the next one. And people like create these spatial maps in their minds of like where they read something, where they were. They may not be aware of this, where certain things happen in the book. You have that feeling like, how far into it am I? Am I, you know, am I about halfway through? Am I near the end? Oh, shoot. Like, I don't want the story to end. Like real readers can relate to that. And I think all that's good for us. And I think it's a feature, not a flaw that we can't multitask while we're reading. It's one of the, like the true monotasks that I you know, came up with this idea about monotasking for. It's like, you can only read a book while you're reading a book on paper. Audiobooks and Kindles and stuff like you can multitask. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And I think if we read for a little bit every day, like it strengthens our, what I call our monotasking muscles and our ability to pay attention. And then we can apply that to our work, to our relationships, to our hobbies. You know what it's like to read a paragraph and then to realize that you've been distracted and Someone could hold a gun to your head and say, "Tell me what happened in that last <laughs> paragraph." And you're like, "Dude, I'm, I'm sorry." And your eyes have tracked it mm -hmm. all the way, and that's so fascinating. The way that our focus works, the way that we can be doing something kind of passively, and yet our mind can be completely somewhere else, and then we kind of you catch yourself having not been where you were, mm -hmm. which is such a bizarre sentence yeah. to say. I mean, that's, that's multitasking, right? So yeah, you're pretending to read the book, you're monotasking, but you're thinking, and your brain is somewhere else. So that's multitasking. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, yeah, you're not, you have to go back and reread that paragraph. That's fine. That happens to everybody, even like the strongest, most focused people in the world. But, um, you know, I think just having that awareness that like that's, 
essentially what's happening, you know, with everything else we're doing in life. You know, like if I was having this conversation and thinking about lunch or something like it's the same thing. It's not like terrible for us. You know, I might not, you know, be as speaking as clearly as, as I struggle to find my words. I'm like, <laughs> like, maybe I am thinking about lunch. But, um, you know, I think it's just like having that awareness, going easier on ourselves and then saying, like, what if I did give my full attention to what I'm doing right now? Either the book, this conversation, the walk that I might go on after this, like it's different. You know, and and I think it's not only good for what we do in the moment, but it like really strengthens our monotasking muscles that have atrophied thanks to technology and a lot of other stuff. And then we can we can apply them, you know, and then be more successful and have more fun. What would you advise to people who perhaps are the audiobook connoisseur that I've just mentioned, but are struggling to sit down? They sit down to read a book and they mm-hmm. can't they can barely even get through half a page before they want to fidget and move around and then leave it yeah i mean i'd say it's, you know start where you are and it's it's not one thing or the other so i listen to audiobooks um but i also read a lot of books i've started so i think like any amount that you could spend reading on paper daily is good for you start with 5 minutes in the book i talk about 20 minutes as being like an optimal amount and start with something easy Reread a book you love in childhood. I don't care if it's Dr. Seuss. Like, start with something on paper. Um, I love to reread, like, J.D. Salinger and Kurt Vonnegut. I've got a bunch of those books on my shelf behind me. Like, they're pretty fast, you know, going, easy reads. Um, don't start with War and Peace, right? Like, don't, or a medical journal or something like Red that. Rising, I'm telling you, if you need yeah. a book to get yep. into, get Pierce Brown. Red Rising is the one. Yep. We, we make a, like a special edition set of Red Rising. No way. Books. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's one of our most popular offerings. It's Dude, great. he's, he's absolutely yep. crushed it. So I put a, yeah. I'm going to go in a complete segue. I put a tweet out the other day saying I was struggling to find something as good as uh, Pierce Brown's Red Rising or Patrick Rothfuss's uh, The Name of the Wind. Uh, yeah. And then whatever the, the Way of Kings, or I think the second one was. Um, and I got a, a ton of interesting responses but I think one of the things that you, one of the things that I found that's interesting, there's two types of fiction books that I've been really enjoying recently. One of them are unbelievably fast-paced. So something like Red Rising is just mm-hmm. like unrelenting. Something happens and then everybody's dead and then everybody's not <laughs> dead and then there's a spaceship and then, you know, someone takes over a planet. But then if you look at Rothfuss and the way that he writes, it's so slow. It's it genuinely pedestrian. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you get to know Kvoth, the guy who is the main protagonist in the books. You get to know his daily routine. You get to know his walk to work, like his walk to when he goes to go and play mm-hmm. his lute at the local um, pub that he plays in. You, you, you know the color of his room. You know the shape of his room. And it's so slow and pedestrian. But I really, really enjoyed that. And I wondered, uh, it kind of makes me think about the multitasking versus the monotasking appearing kind of within a narrative that you've got one book. And I felt, you know, I really, really enjoyed Red Rising and Piers is going to come on the show once he's finished the next one, which I'm excited about. But there was an extra level of, it was like uh, like taking a bath or something, just real luxuriating in the slowness <laughs> of the narrative mm-hmm. when you read The Name of the Wind. And yeah. um, it's so good. It's fantastic. I mean, at any given time, I've got like five different books on my nightstand. I, I And I just like, depending on the mood I'm in, like some days you've had a really stressful day and like, you can't take the like really deep literary fiction like and you want that page turner or you might just want like a biography and like 
read a paragraph before you fall asleep, you know? So I think people should don't feel like if you read one thing and it doesn't work for you that like, oh, I can't read. Like find the thing that works for you. Read like a magazine, you know, you pick up in the airport and just, you know, that might be what you're feeling that day. I think the other thing that is a good tip uh, that I share is if you love audiobooks and you loved a particular book, pick up the print copy. Like you'll have that familiarity with it. It'll be in a relatively easy read. You'll still get something new out of it. Um, and it's a good place to start reading on paper. One of the things, I know that we're talking about print books here, but if you've got a Kindle, um, like a Paperwhite or whatever, there's a, a an extension for Google Chrome called Send to Kindle. And you press a button and the web page that you're looking at, let's say it's a blog post or whatever, it'll appear on your Kindle, fully optimized, highlightable, in complete Kindle font where you can adjust everything in the margins and all that stuff. And it just means that it turns your Kindle into an e-reader for the stuff that you see on the internet. So now as I'm going around and people send me articles or whatever during the day, or I've got a, a summary of Thatcher Wine's tw The Twelve Monotasks book or something, I think, well, I, I can press this one button and then at some point when I decide to open it up, it's all going to be sat there in my library. So that, for me, is a much better way to read articles as well, rather than reading it on Medium on my phone or on Substack on my laptop or something like that. You know, you receive a Substack from someone, press the title on the top, you go to the web page, press the center Kindle. There you go. There's Scott Alexander's new blog post, sat mm -hmm. like a book. At in, and you know it's going to take you maybe 15 minutes. So that's your read the next morning. Sometimes, if you're finding it difficult to get into mm -hmm. books, perhaps articles via e-reader might be a, a good place to look at as well. Yeah, no, it's an interesting concept. And I think, you know, I wonder if that like creates a mindset shift for you that you're not just like mindlessly surfing the web. And oh, it's you know, purposeful. Yeah, right. So it's, it's like you're reading, it's your information consumption, um, it's your checking in on, you know, the authors, whereas you know, so much of the algorithm driven stuff that we're fed, you know, is just kind of mindless and it's so hard to stop. Well, it's the environment it, that you're yeah. in, right? You know, you're sat, the guys, Rob Henderson is able to read full journal articles. My buddy Rob is able to read full journal articles on his phone. Mm -hmm. I, dude, that is superhuman being able to do that. I can't believe that someone could read, you know, a very dry, extended piece of work on the phone because for me that environment just isn't conducive to deep focus and you know a laptop's only a little bit better than that mm -hmm. but again what's the environment that you're in yeah you've got kindle in hand there's no swiping there's no bings there's no bongs yeah. and then a f paper book is one yeah. step further from that well i mean everything can be monotask so like all those little tips and tricks like you know instead of being in this like information overload, I'm on a web browser, I've got these notifications coming in, just being like, oh, I'm gonna monotask this journal article or this, you know, whatever medium piece or the story, like, you know, and give it your full focus. And, and uh, you know, people have been asking me like, can you monotask social media? And, you know, I think you can, like it's super distracting, but when I do it, I basically go in with a purpose. I'm creating something, I'm either applying the creating monotask that's in my, my book and just thinking of it as a creative act that I'm putting up a post um, or I think of it as playing like I'm just having fun you know this is like you know a joke it's a whimsy whimsical thing I'm doing like I just want to connect with the world through my humor um, and and if I'm looking at other people's stuff like I'm pretty much just like going to figure out what my friends are doing or what this person said and then I'm getting out of there 
and it, it's hard. I mean, everything is designed so that you don't do that. So you stay and an hour later, you're like, what am I doing? Where'd the time go? Um, but I think, you know, you can make that decision kind of like what you're talking about. It's like, I'm going to reframe it and I'm going to, you know, use my time wisely to get what works for me. Reframing the experience and what you tell yourself about it as well. You know, if you do get distracted, this is something that I struggle with. If I spend, you know, an hour accidentally falling down some YouTube rabbit hole mm -hmm. and before I know it, that's an hour of my day gone. And I think, oh, you idiot. You had so much stuff to do, and look, you've just spent the last hour learning about some crypto NFT scam that Jake Paul's going to get sued for, or something, like, something that you're never, ever going to use. Uh, so I've been working a lot on trying to reframe the stories that I tell myself about my multitasking and monotasking. Did you come across information foraging and the theory of information foraging during your research? Um, I mean, I, I don't think I'm specifically familiar with that term, but I can imagine what it is. Yeah, yeah so the, it was Sam Harris had a neuroscientist on that was talking about parallel processing and multitasking. And he said that um, in the same way that squirrels are nut foragers, uh, humans are information foragers. And for pretty much all of our history, the people that had the most information were the ones that had the biggest advantage. And then at some point within the last hundred years of our evolution, it switched from the person that has the most information to the person that's able to discern the information the best and actually stay focused on the most relevant inf information. So he uses this example. There's a, a mathematical formula that you can use to look at how many nuts are left in a tree and how far away the next tree is to work out the likelihood of a squirrel leaving that tree to go to the next one because there's a cost that you need to pay to leave the tree and go to the next tree but if the number of nuts that are in this tree start to diminish so much that the effort is worth changing so he applied that to humans and information foraging and he said that one of the problems we have with social media and technology is that the friction from going from tree to tree has essentially dropped to zero and this is one of those things where a lot of the time you'll read You'll see an article that looks interesting on Twitter. Click on it, read the title, read the subheading, click off it, go back to Twitter to find something else. Like you've just selected an article that you thought to yourself would be interesting to read and you managed to get through the first paragraph and then enough, like I'll jump to another tree. Um, so yeah, I think being aware of that, being conscious and mindful of that compulsion to go somewhere else is is pretty important. And also what you were talking about earlier on, the fact that when you're having a conversation with somebody like this, not being distracted, not trying to think about other things. I think that the prescription for people to try and have a, a, a private podcast with one of their friends for, you know, half an hour or an hour per week, talking about something in a rigorous focused way without distractions, it's so therapeutic and it makes you such a better conversationalist mm -hmm. because you have the skill to be able to care about what the other person says. And you talk about this as well, right? That listening is actually a skill that people can develop and that they can monotask. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on listening in the book. And one of my tips, um, I don't know if it's in the book or not, um, to be honest, but is listen as if you're recording a podcast. You know, listen like it's uncomfortable <laughs> that you're paying so much attention. The other person is like, hey, what's going on here? Like normally you're looking at your phone. <laughs> what happened? Um, you know, that's that's what we should do. We don't have to do it in every single conversation, but we should have the skills to do it. Nothing in our adult lives and, and maybe nothing in our you know, childhood either these days, like teaches us how to do that and rewards us for doing that. I mean, yeah, you might have friends that are like, I want to hang out with that guy. He's he listens. 
Um, but you know, but and you're kind of sort of rewarded, like because I think listening is important to sales and customer service and the success of businesses, like how well you listen to your customers and change your products and your marketing strategy. But it, nobody talks about it really as listening. And so we don't like really measure it. We don't really tell people to develop that skill necessarily. It's super important, especially in relationships, um, you know, as a parent, like there's so much, there's some things that are said, a lot of things that aren't said. And if you're multitasking, you're not going to hear either. You might hear what's said. You're definitely not going to hear what's not said in between the lines or the words or whatever. If you're just thinking, looking at your phone or thinking about something else. Um, so I think it's super rewarding. I think we should do more of it. What yeah. about walking? So, yeah, so there's a chapter I'm walking in the book. And, and that kind of grew out of this idea that, like, you know, we, we tend to combine our walks with other stuff, whether it's like I'm walking for exercise or I'm walking, I'm going to make a phone call. Or I'm going to take pictures. Like, what if we just went for a walk? What if we just, like, you know, opened our eyes, like, looked up instead of down at our phones and, you know, saw new things? I'm looking out the window here. It's, like, gorgeous Colorado setting, super bright. I, I look super pale <laughs> as a result. Um, but I should probably get out and get some sunshine. Uh, but, you know, see things you've never seen before. Hear sounds you've never heard before. Like, if you're walking around a city, you might smell some things you never smelled before. And that's okay. Hopefully it's like a bakery or something. Um, but like it makes us alive to, you know, absorb all this cool stuff in the world and be grateful for it, to be honest. And and practice that ability, like not to reach for our phone. Um, and just be a little bit bored, maybe. I don't think walking is boring personally, but some people might think it is, and they might be like, I better go for a run. Um but I think just like slowing down and enjoying the walk is is very therapeutic. Yeah, I um, I, morning walk is the most important thing that I do as a part of my day. If I if I get that in, even if it's just five minutes, the rest of the day is usually like noticeably better as opposed to the days when I've woken up too late or I've got too much to do and I I can't fit it in. Even with that though, I find myself I've been tempted to do uh, diction. Uh, pronunciation exercises while I walk or I'm going to do I'm going to spend the entire walk thinking of all different things that I'm grateful for so I set myself a challenge and that is still I'm finding a way to I've left my phone don't take my phone out on a morning but I've still managed to find a way to multitask a, a walk which is specifically there to be this lovely oasis of calm first thing in the morning and then there's me doing sinful caesar sipped his snifter seized his <laughs> knees and sneezed first thing in the morning as i'm walking around scaring Very all impressive. of the dogs and cats yeah i mean one you know i mentioned the the 23 minute statistic earlier about like switching from one task to another and how long it takes to prepare you know to get into the next task so one way i think about walk sometimes is like if you're going to lose that 23 minutes Anyway, if you're going to be sitting at your desk and be like, okay, what do I have to do? How do I you know, get into the, the mind space for that? Like, maybe you should just go for a walk and, and use that as your reset time. 23 minutes, it's like, you're going to lose it. Get up, do something, clear your head. And it's, it's actually, I don't think it's that you should never multitask on the walks. You can use them purposefully, like what you're doing, because that, you could argue, like, the thing that you're doing in the foreground is actually yes, yes. your exercise and the yes. background is just your walking. Um, so I think it's good to combine kind of like your reading. It's like combine different types of walks. Have one where you're like doing nothing but paying attention to like the ground underneath your feet 
another one, maybe you decide like, I'm gonna like think of a new idea for this project. Um, and then other ones like you'll you'll go out, you know, just planning to clear your head, and then you like the most creative idea will pop into your mind um, because you decided to do nothing. And if you had decided to do something, like it wouldn't have showed up. And I think that's a really cool experience, especially for creatives and entrepreneurs. Yeah. That highlights the difference between walking and reading, right? That with reading, it's always a front brain task. You can't do something else whilst you read. Whereas with walking, it's automated. Same thing goes for driving. You've got a, a, a part in there about getting there, right? Commutes and journeys and trips and stuff. Most people that are competent drivers are able to do something else mentally whilst they're navigating traffic with their hands and feet. So that means that there are different ways, I think, to probably look at monotasking and multitasking. I would probably classify being on a Zoom call whilst writing an email as a different sort of multitask to being in a car whilst Mm -hmm. thinking about something for work or being on a walk whilst listening to a podcast. If there's something that you can outsource to system two, Mm -hmm. meanwhile, system one is uh, sorry to system one meanwhile system two is actually active doing something else i think that's quite different yeah and i think we like just having the self-awareness to think about those things as being different and not lumping them all together like oh i have to multitask all the time otherwise i'll never get anything done or i can't monotask or or i can only monotask like there are different subtleties within it like you were just talking about there's the background tasking and primary tasking the driving making a phone call laundry podcast and then there's like the cognitive heavy tasks and if you can learn you know what you can and you can't do then you can make better decisions about what stresses you out what makes you productive what makes you happy what makes you connected you can decide like i i better not even take my phone out while i'm out on a date because i know that like my brain's going to look at it and i'm going to be distracted and she's not going to want to go out again so I think it can be really helpful in all situations. What about learning and uh, teaching? So, yeah, so those are two chapters in the book. And, and to a certain extent, they're you know, two sides of the same thing. Um, but, you know, I definitely believe in, you know, learning, continuous learning throughout our lives. I, I like have a lot of hobbies and I'm <laughs> trying to find more time to, to add additional ones, learn new instruments, and take up new sports and all that. And I think having like a, beginner's mind um if you're familiar with that like a buddhist term about like i'm not a know-it-all about anything even stuff i've been doing for 21 years you know there's always something to learn and opening yourself up to the possibility and then monotasking the learning right so saying like i'm learning right now like i'm learning how to you know talk about monotasking more better i'm learning about you know how to manage my time whatever and then you know, make those self-observations that we've talked about throughout the podcast, like, and then apply the lessons. Don't feel like you have to do what everybody else does. Don't feel like you have to learn how they learn um, or do what they do. Find what works for you. And the other side of it is teaching, like the teaching chapter, people shouldn't skip it because they're like, oh, I'm not a professional teacher. I don't you know, stand in front of a classroom and teach people. We're all teachers all the time. You know, I might teach my kids something just by them seeing me do it or a complete stranger might see how I like talk to the waiter in a restaurant um, and be like, Oh, that's, you know, that was very respectful and empathetic and kind and, and then learn from it. Um, so, but, but on the other hand, like if you really like somebody asks you, can you teach me how to play that song on guitar? 
you know, then I really have to think about, huh, like, how do I do it? How do I teach it? And it like creates this whole like next level monotasking that like brings your focus to what you know, how can you transmit it to somebody else? How are they receiving it as a learner? Should I make some adjustments? Um, and you can basically, you know, you can develop mastery of things that you weren't, didn't know you were an expert in necessarily, but somebody else thought you could teach it or maybe your own career. Like you can take it to the next level just by thinking about how would I teach this to other people? So it's pretty cool. What are the most common resistances that people encounter when they're trying to implement monotasking more into their lives? Um, you know, some people say it's, it's, um, it's a luxury, like it's, you know, it's a privilege, like I don't have time, I have bills to pay. I, you know, have too much to do, you know, maybe when I'm retired, I'll be able to do that, you know? And I think that, um, you know, we get in our own way. I think there's a present moment, every moment, right here, right now, like with the people you're with, doing the thing you're doing, wherever you are. And if you recognize, like, I could either do two or five things in this moment, or I could do one. And if you do one, like, it's in the present moment, you're not, you know, distracting yourself and diluting yourself and your capabilities. So I think, you know, you give it a try and, and see if it works for you. Um, so I think there's just like a little bit of that fear um, of people getting in their own way. That's one of the big ones. Losing memories and not being able to recall the things that you've done is one of the biggest advantages that I can see of this. I don't know how it works. I'd love to speak to a, neuro, a neuroscientist and, and find out why it is that when you try and have two things in your mind at once, you can barely remember either of them. Mm -hmm. It's not like you remember 50% of a trip if you spent the entire trip <laughs> obsessing about something for work. You just don't remember any of the trip and you probably can't remember what you were obsessing about to do with work either. And... Yeah, especially because I'm out here in Austin and I'm meeting new people and going to new places and stuff. And I'm really, really conscious. Like I want to remember this. And it's cool. Mm -hmm. It's the first time that I've been in another country for an extended period of time. I want to spend, I want to be able to look back and really enjoy the memories that I've created. And yet it's antithetical to the way that I spent most of the last 10 or 15 years of my life trying to run a business, trying to be on WhatsApp whilst taking calls, whilst thinking about two or three or four other things all at the same time. So, yeah, I think the quality of life change that you're going to have from monotasking would probably be worth it on its own. But then when you think about the increase in the quality of your output that you're going to have, the downregulation in terms of stress, all that stuff. Yeah, man, I mean, it's yeah. it, it, it really is, I think, the perennial sort of modern person problem. <laughs> yeah modern but yet an ancient problem just you know a little bit more information weaponized with technology yeah yeah but i was at an event recently and um you know just having a side conversation with somebody and i introduced myself and you know, said hi my name is thatcher and he got oh i want to remember that and he got out a notebook and he wrote down my name and i was like come on my name is like memorable right i'm it's not like john or something um but i was like that's a great hack you know, tip that he figured out for himself. Like he has, to, he brings himself into the present moment. This person's name is Thatcher. I don't know if he made a note about what I looked like or something. It's monotasking. Like everybody else is like, oh, hey, yeah. Um, and then you forget what their name is. Maybe because you were thinking about something else. Maybe you're just bad with names. It doesn't really matter. But like if you can find what works for you, whether it's to record those memories, um, or something else and let's just like fully pay attention everything's better 
I would say, I, I realized this as well, that I had an aversion to taking photos for a while. Uh, and one of the reasons for that was I'd confused taking photos for posting on social media. You know, it's super cringe if you're out at dinner and somebody decides to try and take a million photos of the food because you know that they're not taking the photo of the food because they want to remember the food. They're doing it because they want to flex on whatever social <laughs> network about whatever food they're eating or whatever restaurant it is. And that had sort of made me feel a bit ick about recording the stuff that I did. But then Youssef, one of my good buddies, he's an absolute fiend with it. And I really, I very much appreciate and I'm envious of how many photos he has that capture the things that he's done. And I think that there's maybe a place, it's certainly something that I needed to stress test myself on. The fact that because I didn't like the idea of taking a photo for someone else didn't mean that I shouldn't be taking a photo just for me. And the difference between your man that's written it down in a notepad and said, hey, Thatcher, why don't we take a photo together and just snapped a, a photo. I do think that there's probably a way that you can be quite present and quite monotasked whilst taking a photo. However, if it's performative and it's then being done for someone else, I think that that's where I draw the line. I think that's a great distinction. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're doing it for yourself, because like this is how you're fully present. If you're taking a picture of your food because you're like, you know, I'm going to enjoy it more. I'm going to taste the flavors. I'm going to write about, you know, I want to remember like where on the plate this was positioned before I ate it or something. And then I'm going to tell the story of it later. But, but I think that like if you're, if you're multitasking it, like you're not actually, if you're just thinking about what it looks like while you're doing anything, it's live concert or food or trip you're on or something. Like if you're always thinking like, oh, this would look so cool to people who aren't here it's yeah it's one thing and then if it's like this will heighten my enjoyment of being in the present moment and my senses and you know my connection to these people um then it's a different thing and i think we can you know social media is not great about drawing that distinction um or teaching us anything really um but you know we can you can think about it in monotasking and multitasking terms as a just way as a way to frame it Am I monotasking? Am I doing two things, but it's still the same monotask of eating, of walking, of traveling? Or am I doing two things and they're really multitasking because I'm here, but I'm thinking about that social media post that I'm going to create later? Thatcher Wine, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to check out the book, it will be linked in the show notes below, The 12 Monotasks. And if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Uh, so I have a website. Um, I have two websites. Maybe three. Uh, Thatcherwine.com, monotasking.tips, and juniperbooks.com if you want to check out Red Rising and some of the other things we talked about. Awesome. I appreciate you. Cheers, man. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure. 